morning, everybody. It has, it's been a good week. It's been an interesting week. It's a little different than normal for me, um, but difference is good sometimes. This is the first time ever that didn't have to be ready by Thursday night. So that's a little different. Um, made it so I was a little bit more flexible on Wednesday. And then I had a, there was a little bit of a panic about notes about am I gonna get this in in time? I had Kelly, um, Joe. <laughs> uh, but we got it all together, it was good. But something interesting that I didn't realize is normally on Thursday night, give the message and then there's a few tweaks and things that happen. Now we don't ever intend for that to be a practice time, um, but inevitably if you've delivered um, a message or a presentation of some sort, you want to make it better as you continue on. And I didn't have that this week, so just ruminating about it. Um, and what I found is usually true for me is um, the Lord shows up the day before or even the day of to tweak something really critical within the message. Uh, there's been times where we've been before service over here as elders praying over the service, and there's something within that time that I needed to change for the very beginning of the service. Um, and so this week is kind of like that, except for it was yesterday. Uh, there was a little bit of an important tweak that needed to happen to kind of bring us into what's going on here. Um, for many of you, or if you're my age or older, you remember between the years of 2007 and 2012, the huge recession that our country went through. A lot of people lost jobs, lost homes, very stressful time to be in the workforce and to be around in America. Uh, difficult time to be. Uh, if you're about five or 10 years younger than me, I'm just about 35, you might remember your parents going through that or a family member losing a job, losing a house, and just watching that difficulties. If you're any younger than that, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, but this really, excellent, I'm glad you know. Um, <laughs> Really difficult time. Um, I graduated high school in 2006. Uh, I tried out college and thought, nope, that's high school 2.0, I'm gonna pass. And I wanted to go into the workforce. And I just wanted a job, I wanted to get into a career position where I could just work up in a company and get to making money. I, I didn't really want to be doing school anymore. I've done that for 12 years. I'm done, thank you very much. And I had a very high opinion of myself as a worker as well. I thought anybody would be really happy to have me as an employee. Um, and so I thought, I got a lot of talent, I've got a lot of gumption, um, I'm gonna work hard for wherever I'm at, I just need someone to give me that open door, and surely someone will see this. And then we have recession happen, and we have, um, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of more people unemployed than normal that are all applying for jobs that they are way overqualified for. And so at this point, by I was trying to think about the timeline. After working through this and getting, still having jobs, very thankful that I had a job during that time. Even if it wasn't a job that I didn't want to be in, I still was employed, which was uh, a blessing more than some had. But there was two specific jobs that I applied for by the time 2010 rolled around. It's still, we're in a difficult spot. There's still a lot of people that are unemployed. I applied at the Department of Transportation and I applied at the Colorado County Office of Education. One was as a dispatcher, one was working in their accounting office. And either I would have been happy in, when I talked to the people that work there, those are career jobs. People retire in those positions. So I was just, either one, I'll be happy with. At the Department of Transportation, there were 200 applicants for that one position. And so 
And again, I mean, I'd been rejected several different times, and I just, I still had very high hopes, really positive outlook. Someone will for sure see about what a great employee I could be for them. Um, get through the entire application process, uh, go through the first interview, second interview, final interview. 200 applicants down to three people, and I got to be in that list. And so I'm just very high hopes for this. And at this point, we should realize now that I did not get those jobs. <laughs> um, that's really hard, but there was a really important lesson that I needed to learn during this time of my life. Because during this time, I've been getting a lot of input, a lot of advice, a lot of good wisdom from people that have gone before me. But of course, when you just graduate high school and you're that age of your life, you've got it all figured out. You've got plans, you've got schemes, you know better. I know me better than anyone else and no one else has had the same experience I've had, right? <laughs> and some people that are in that area of their life right now going, mm, you don't know me, sir. Um, <laughs> we've all been there. Um, anyways, at the, after this happened, it's devastating, it's really frustrating. The head of the business department at the county office of education said, hey, would you be willing to get lunch with me next week? I thought, this is really odd, but sure. You just didn't offer me a job, and now you're asking if I'll grab lunch with you. It was actually a very considerate thing for him to do. And he sat down, we had lunch, and he said, you have a lot of promise, you're a great candidate, but we don't hire apprentices. We hire journeymen. We hire people that either already have the experience or they have the education so they can do this job. We don't hire people to train into this job. And I wanted to jump ahead. I had such a high opinion of where I was at, I thought, I can do that job though, if you'll just give me a little bit of time and a chance. But that's not really how things normally work. I needed to learn that lesson in humility that you, there's a correct order of things that although I had a real high opinion of myself, there was a particular direction that I needed to go down, that I was ignoring or wanting to push aside or thought, I'm the exception. No, God, I don't want to go that direction. I want to go this direction and I can do it. I know I can do it. I needed to understand that that just was not going to happen. And I had to endure rejection over and over and over and over again to finally have that sink in. Is that I had been people giving me godly wisdom in my life that had seen my talents and abilities and said, Joe, you would be better off teaching or working somewhere in that direction. And I thought that works with students. I will pass on that, thank you. <laughs> and eventually I finally, at this point, listened. I went back to school and had every single door miraculously open in ways that I couldn't imagine. An entire semester before I finished college, so six months, I had a job waiting for me for when I finished college in the middle of the school year. It just doesn't happen. They don't hire people in January to be teachers. But through this process, I had everything that I needed, everything that I wanted lined up finally when I just said, okay, Lord, I'll do what you want. And that's what we're looking at today. God wants all of you. He wants you to be dedicated to him. He wants to walk with you through your whole life. 
He's not just looking for a piece of your pie in your life, your spiritual part of my life that I use when I need to grow or when things are difficult, then I turn to that God section of my life. No, he wants the whole pie. He wants your whole life. And he's going to put you through trials and difficulties and challenges until you realize that in your life. And if you've already realized that, but you might have wandered a little bit, you're going to enjoy those challenges and trials again until you return back to what God has called you to. And so the question is, how much will it take to realize that, to respond to that, to finally give everything over to the Lord? We're going to look at Jacob walking through this lesson today. What I walk through is nothing compared to what he's about to walk through in his life. To finally learn this lesson. At Deuteronomy 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Israel means God strives. God strives. God strives in our lives, bringing us to a place that we need to be. So when it says, Hear, O Israel, that's the name of this people, that's the name of this man. That becomes Jacob's name, and we are called by the Lord's name. As a part of Israel, we are brought into this heritage of God strives, and he's going to strive over you and bring you to where you need to be. How much will it take? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and these shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is in every aspect of your life, everywhere, in all things. It should be walking with the Lord. It's not just a piece of the pie. It's in everything. Is that hard? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be constant reminders your entire life of this, that God needs to be a part of everything. He's not called us to easy things. He's called us to godly things, to abundance. But with that is a price, a challenge, a difficulty, a call but how much will it take? Because true wisdom is learning from the mistakes of others. We're going to learn something that Jacob had to walk through today. Jacob was a pretty stubborn fellow. He had to be pushed to the utter limits to finally learn this. And I pray that you do not have to be pushed to that. That it's a little lesson that we need to learn. Because everyone's, there are certain lessons that I can tell you and certain lessons you must learn. I can describe them to you, but until you've walked it out, there's no way to really understand that. How much will it take to learn that lesson I'm going to talk about today? Genesis 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Jacob's walked through a lot of things. 
He's learned a lot of lessons over the last 20 years, but he's been running from one very important one that entire time, is that eventually he needs to face Esau. He needs to go back home. And this is what we're gonna look at today because this, this could change his story forever on what his life will mean, facing his brother whom he cheated out of his blessing and he took an advantage of him for his birthright. He behaved in a manner that he should have never behaved towards his brother or anyone else. He did something that most people just would not forget or forgive. And he's headed back home. This is what he's headed towards. And so when we look at this chapter, there's actually some, a lot of interesting things that are very ambiguous. We don't quite understand or know what they're alluding to because they're not explained in Scripture. We don't get a lot of extra details, so we can only guess at it. Even this idea of, he met angels along the way. Usually we get a little more detail than that. It seems like a significant moment. He named a place over this that becomes one of the main, one of the main cities in that region, which we're now not quite sure of even where that's at, Manaheim. It means two camps. Why does it mean two camps? He just said he met angels, so he named it two camps. Why? We don't ever fully know. There's some allusions to what's going to happen in the rest of this chapter when Jacob is split into two camps. Even this, um, this idea of why is he meeting angels now? Because what happens when we meet angels? When we look at the rest of the account that we've seen thus far, there's two things that occur with the presence of angels. One is destruction. When the angels come, the warning goes out and destruction happens upon the earth. And the second thing that can happen, what we've seen, is destiny. As there's going to be some miraculous moment that occurs here that's going to shape history. We're going to go meet Esau, who has vowed to kill Jacob. Is it going to be destruction? Or is it going to be destiny? Now, there's also some other interesting things here about... uh, how things are moving around. When I have pictured this story and everything that's going on, my mind just created a map for me of where people are and what's going on. But I wanna show you a map for a moment about where everyone is. There we are. So, we are, my new handy pointer. (laughs) We are way up here in the mountains of Gilead. This is where we left off last week where he encountered Laban. And he's traveling down here, and he's going to make a turn. And this is Succoth. This is where he's going to be for quite a while. Now, he said, send messengers to my brother in the land of Seir. And I always just passed on over that, but I thought about this today. I know where that is. That's way down here. It's 124 miles away. Jacob's family, when he left 20 years ago, was here. Beersheba. How does he know that Esau's way down here now? And we're never told, but he knew. Now, an interesting thing with that is flocks travel about seven miles per day. Here to here, where we're going to encounter at the end of this chapter, 35, maybe 40 miles. It's not very far. It's maybe a week if they're really pushing, but they're kind of meandering. People can travel about 10 to 20 miles per day. So in order to even get down to where his brother is, that's a week. And then another to get back to them is another week. So they're just kind of meandering along. They're hoping for the best here. And by the time they get there to them, any sort of news they're going to get is going to be, if it's bad news, is too late. If it's good news, well, then 
great, we didn't have to press on anyways. But it helps us with understanding where things are occurring within the account. And how did he know he was down there? I had a discussion with Matt about this this week, and he gave some nice insights. We're living in a, they're living in a time where news quite literally travels on people's feet. You're walking around, and as you met each other on the road, you would stop and you would share the news. And so you would ask after people, how, do you know how they're doing or where they went or where they're going? And so somehow he found out this information along the way and he's hoping for a positive response from his brother. We're hoping that time has healed old wounds. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. Hey, that's great. And there are 400 men with him. Not so great. That's a raiding party. That's the normal number to go and pillage and plunder. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. When you stop running, when you finally realize you have to face the problems of your past, those problems will catch up to you. That does not mean you just keep running. That's not the lesson to be learned from that statement. Because in Proverbs 26, it says, Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. When you keep doing the same thing over and over again and running from it, then you do it again and you run from it. Do it again and you run from it. This is the comparison for you. It's like a dog returning to its vomit. It's disgusting. It's absurd. We just look at that and go, why? <laughs> but it doesn't stop there. Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Someone who thinks, I've got it figured out. Everyone else is the problem. I know what I'm doing. A fool is better off than this person. About a year ago, I actually took time to define how the Bible looks at fools. A fool, if we translate it into the modern vernacular, would be godless scum. Saying, the fool is better off than that person that just thinks, I've got it all figured out. I know better. So when you stop, you've realized this is foolish for me to repeat this over and over again. You will have to face the problems you made. I'm going to repeat the last part. That you made. That's an important thing to recognize, is to realize I did this to me and nobody else. Be realistic about what you are facing. Do not diminish your part in it. And be honest and face it with humility. Proverbs 19, desire without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Our desire is to blame somebody else because it's really unfortunate when I'm the problem. Nobody wants to be the problem. I don't know a single one of you that said, do you like being the problem? We go, oh yeah, I love it when I made the mistakes. And the... No. But in order to get through it, we have to own what we've done. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. 
I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. He's almost there. He's not quite there yet. Jacob still has plans. He still has schemes. He's still going to try to do this in his own effort. But he's almost there. How much will it take? How much will it take for you? And how much will it take for me to finally give everything over to the Lord? Out of Hosea 6, it says, Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. An allusion to the cross. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like the morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. You're here at the beginning, but where did you go? This is us. When it's convenient or when it's the most dire, Lord, I love you with everything. And then that moment passes, the trial goes, and so do we. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And consider how we normally Go to the Lord. Lord, I will give up everything for you. I will sacrifice for you. I will tithe for you. I will volunteer the church for you. I will do all these things for you that you may bless my life. This is the contract between me and you, Lord. I'm giving up all these things so that you will do me good. Who's that about? Me. That's about me. And God says, I desire stead fast love. The word there is chesed. It's the love that God has for you. I will be there for you in everything, for everything, no matter who or what you become. I will be there for you. It's the love of family. It doesn't matter who you are, you can come home and I will be here. I desire steadfast love. And where have you been? So often we treat God like we do our earthly parents when we grow and we move out. And I'll call you sometime, Dad. I'll call you when I need you to watch the kids. I'll call you when I need some advice. I'll call you when I need a helping hand. The relationship here, Dad lives in the house. I'm with you in life and in everything. 
and your comings and your goings. I'm going to walk with you. I desire you to know me. Not know about me. Know me. I know about our president. I don't know him. There's an immense difference there in what God's wanting from us. And for us to realize that, some of us will have to be undone. Jacob is going to be undone. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. This is the scheme. There's some wisdom we're going to glean from this, but this is still the scheme. He's still got his own plans. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servant, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. And he instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed a night in the camp. This is the first time we're going to see Jacob ever giving us good advice. <laughs> Some wisdom here. You know what he did first, prior to what I just read? He prayed. We've never seen Jacob pray. He prayed to the Lord. Lord, deliver me. It didn't immediately happen. All right. How do we approach conflict well when I'm at fault? I did this. How do I find restoration? How do I find resolution? How do I bring our relationship back to right standing? He doesn't say so that he will buy back his brother's forgiveness. He says that he might accept me. He starts by extending an olive branch. He gives him a gift. And there's wisdom in that. Proverbs 18, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. Being able to sacrifice a little, have some thought and some consideration. I got this for you because I knew you would like it. I would like to have a conversation. Will you sit down with me? Will go a long way to help soften someone's heart that is hard against you because of something you did. It's a way to start a conversation. It's good wisdom for us. And it helps us with some humility going into this conversation. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. And quarreling is like the bars of a castle. When you get into that conversation, be careful with what you say. Don't bring up past hurts. Don't bring up past faults. Focus on the resolution. Focus on acknowledging what you have done and how you desire to restore. Don't engage in old fights, old conflicts. Those don't help anybody. I've got a bunch of people in here that are married. Does that help when you get in an argument that you're trying to restore? You remember what you did. I mean, am I really all at fault? That ever make anything better? No. No. 
Like the bars of a castle. Oh, yeah? Let's bring out the list of offenses. If you want to make someone unyielding, offend them. If you want someone to be responsive, be humble. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those that love it will eat its fruit. What you say and how you say it matters. You can say the right thing in the wrong tone. It matters. Do you know what Jacob's doing here? He's making sure that Esau hears over and over and over again. You are my Lord, I am your servant. You are my Lord, I am your servant. You are my Lord, I am your servant. I don't think I'm better than you, Esau. I would just like to be restored to you. I'm sorry for what I've done. And he repeated it over and over and over again. Life or death. And our words define that for us. The same night, he arose and his two wives, his two female servants, his and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. There's an interesting and wonderful thing about maps that are in your Bible is they help us understand things a little bit better because every time I'd read this before, I thought he sent his family ahead of him to shield him. And I thought, that's kind of a jerk move. It's not much of a dad and a husband. And so got a map, and there was actually a really good uh, video of a guy who had studied this chapter that Matt sent me this week. So we've got this map, and they're traveling down the Jabbok River, and right here is where the ford of the Jabbok is. So this is the big enhanced version of that. Edom is way down south. We talked about that. And if you just look at a straight shot, it would put Esau coming from behind him. And that doesn't actually make sense with the rest of what Scripture has just told us because he's sending the droves ahead, and they're headed out here westward. So they're expecting them to come from this direction traveling up the Jordan. Peniel is where Jacob is going to be in the rest of this chapter. So if he woke up in the middle of the night and he sent his family across the ford, that means he's sending them this direction. Now the enemy, or what he's presuming to be the enemy, is coming from this direction. He put himself as a shield before his family. He sent them across because he wanted to make sure that he saw them first and that they would have time to get away. This is the third time we've seen Jacob actually be a good example to us of how a man is supposed to protect his family and put himself on the line first to make sure that they are safe. And that is the call God has on their life. But this puts Jacob alone. When you are in the most desperate spots in your life, alone is a terrible spot to be. You are left with nothing but your thoughts. He's probably so emotionally exhausted and spent by this point. He's, I don't know if any of you have actually been at a space in your life where it was really life or death. Some of you that have served in the armed forces may have been where you thought, I might die tomorrow. We all might die tomorrow but most of us have not. That's where Jacob's at right now. We all might die tomorrow. Everyone that I love could be killed tomorrow. 
because of what I did 20 years ago. I can't imagine the headspace he would have to be in. Emotionally wrung out. And then, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. What? Who's this guy? We don't know. Scripture doesn't answer that question. We can only guess. Some people believe this is an angel from God. Some people think this is a demon. Some people think this is the spirit of Esau himself come to wrestle with him before their meeting. And many believe that this is God himself, a theophany. There's times in scripture that God appears to us prior to him coming as Christ. In the Old Testament, these are called theophanies. We saw this happen with Abraham when he met God while he was on his way to destroy Sodom. We see this now here, and we see this happen later on with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego when the fourth person is in the fire with them. They don't know who that is. But it would seem by what we have in the rest of this chapter that this is God himself come to push Jacob to his utter limits. He's going to wrestle with him till dawn. I don't know if any of you are wrestlers or have wrestled. I wrestled in high school. A match is three minutes. That's the entire thing. And it's every ounce of exertion for three minutes where you are absolutely exhausted by the end of it. Every muscle straining to its utmost limit to win out. They wrestled till dawn. Utter exhaustion. Physically, utter exhaustion. Emotionally. And he hasn't slept all night. He is being pushed to his utter limits. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Anybody ever broke a bone, sprained something, tore a ligament? It's excruciating. So to be in this moment of excruciating pain, emotional exhaustion, physical exhaustion, sleep deprived, we're just right about where we need to be. (laughs) But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Because I have everything to lose and everything to gain. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. I'm going to rephrase this a little bit. I'm not going to change it. I'm just going to rephrase it so we understand a difference between then and now. Names meant something then. Right now it's just our name. We like our name, but doesn't have the deep implied meaning that they did at that point in time. What, who are you? What is your name? Who are you? I'm Jacob. I'm the heel grabber. I'm the deceiver. I'm the liar. I'm the cheat. I'm the one who doesn't deserve anything I've gotten. I've robbed my family. That's who I am. 
if you consider a point in your life where God has finally gotten to the place of utter desperation where you're really able to be honest with yourself about who you are. And it might be something to the effect of, I'm the adulterer. I'm the addict. I'm the drunkard. I'm the thief. I'm the proud. I'm the arrogant. I'm the glutton. I'm the unworthy. We have to be honest about who we are. And God will say the same thing to you that he's about to say to Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. No more. You are a new creation. It's done. You will no longer think of yourself in those old ways. I have declared it so. You will now be called by my name. You will be called Israel. Israel means God strives. God strives in your life. This is now who you are you will no longer own that former name. That former person is not you anymore. Stop telling yourself you are. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The person who blesses is always the greater. For Jacob to recognize and ask for a blessing means he understood he was not going to win. He could not win out over God. He could only acknowledge that I will not let go. I want what you have for me, Lord. And whatever that might be. Then the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Out of Romans 6, it tells us, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. Yeah. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. This is 
who you are. Israel means God strives. He strives in your life to bring you out of darkness and into light. He strives for you to understand the meaning of your life, the purpose to be able to die to yourself and live, to love God with everything and to love others. Out of Mark 12, Jesus answered, the most important is Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. This is who you are. What will it take for God to bring you there? Would you stand with us?